You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 370 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined today by Seth Miller, and and Fos will be joining us in a little bit. We think. We think. We're not sure, but we think so. There's some car keys involved. It's hard to tell. (laughs) Lost car keys. Found car keys, but you know. (laughs) Um, so Seth, you were just in San Bernardino for Northern Pacific's unveiling of their livery of their seven five twos. It's a yes. sharp livery. It's a, it's probably one of the better looking liveries out there. So I like the way they sort of do the faded N yep. at the front, like the sort of pixel art kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. also it's really hard to make a seven fifty seven two hundred look bad. True. This is true. Um, I mean, unless you got that paint that United has put on some of them. Well, <laughs> you're not talking about the livery. You're talking about like just the paint that peels. No, no, no. The like the special liveries that they did. Like the oh, you, women, like the, you don't the like women's. the her here liveries? No, I don't. They're terrible. It just looks like I don't know. I think they're fun. <laughs> it's like they tried to have like the Max. Uh, what is that? Uh, the Peter Max. The tri- yeah, the Peter Max, but it just didn't work out for. Them. Yeah, I will say I think the green that they that Northern Pacific chose is a little too bright for Northern Lights, but that's only based on my one time ever seeing them. So maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> and, and that's seriously picking nits. Well, I mean, but it's a let's let's be honest. Like it's kind of got a sharp. It, it's a it's definitely different than yeah. liveries we've a lot of airlines have picked, right? Yeah, I mean the the black tail, the little and up at the top. It's they they did a, some very different things. I, I got to say, like. And maybe this is good, maybe this is bad. They are clearly spending money on design. Yeah, they're spending a lot of money on design uh, in the cabin as well. And a lot, and, you know, a good part of me is wondering, like, huh, six, nine, twelve months from now, are they going to wish they had that? You know, like buy fuel and pay pilots. Yeah, but who can say? Now, you and Brett uh, from Cranky Flyer uh, yep. talked, did a little show. I'd encourage our listeners to go listen to it. But I just have like a few questions for you, just generally about sure. kind of your thoughts on on the airline. Um, so they're they're looking to fly to Asia from mm-hmm. Anchorage, uh, and they can do this because of ETOPS, right, or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. Yeah, that's yeah. that was a really surprising bit to me, um, and to to Brett as well when I told him about it. Uh, the the idea that they don't need to do ETOPS, and we've since talked. I've talked to a couple different dispatchers friends and there's been some interesting discussion about what's really needed for diversion airports mm-hmm. and sort of the reliability of some of them and you know which ones are rated to handle a 757 how far out of the way is it going to be and you know brett and i joked about it, like you're going to land somewhere in russia and then the plane is gone oh look <laughs> you brought me a gift thank you um right and obviously that's not really really going to happen but there's been times where it's taken a while to get a plane out um so what I'm really, really wondering, though, is like, you know, think of cons- sort of somewhat overlapping circles or Venn diagram, essentially sort of stretching along the flight path. You need those circles to overlap enough that, you know, if any one goes down, like the other two on either side of it still touch. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, one airport out of service means plane no fly. Yeah. Um, you, so that, that's going to be super interesting. Do you think the lack of ETOPS rating is temporary and that they're going to work towards that? Well, so... He said, uh, Rob McKinney, CEO, when I asked him about it, he said specifically that they were going to continue to maintain the engines as though they're ETOPS rated. And the, these planes, at least the initial ones, were some of uh, the Hawaii service planes from American and USA prior to that. So the planes have the necessary onboard equipment for ETOPS. Mm-hmm. And when you know uh, Northern Pacific took them over, they were aircraft. The aircraft had you know were, were essentially ETOPS ready. Yeah. The thing about ETOPS is, is it requires a lot of sort of planning and logistics and paperwork for the airline as well. So you have to demonstrate 
that you have the sort of operational capabilities and under, you know, to handle the diversions and to handle the this and to handle the that. And the process, I mean, typically takes years and you have to be flying to start doing it. Mm. So until they're really flying these, there's no way the FAA is going to let them really start doing that. I mean, they can do some of the paperwork stuff in advance, but like the FAA is not going to just like when the 752 show up, be like, oh yeah, you can run a meetups. That's no problem. Hmm. So I think it sounds like they want to get to the point where they can get the ETOPS rating, presumably because that would help them if some of these airports go out a lot, you know, go offline along the way. But I, I, you know, sort of did some digging on it. I can't come up with any additional destinations it helps them reach, at least not with the 752s. Maybe when they go to the, if they get a 321 XLR, which, you know, other than the Qatar Airways ones, which we'll talk about a little later, um, there aren't many available for like five to 10 years. Yeah. And and so, I mean, they're, they're really looking at, Anchorage to Tokyo, Osaka, um, where Nagoya, else? Seoul, Nagoya. Um, Busan, you could assume has a chance as a secondary US, uh-huh. a secondary Korea market. Uh, possibly, uh, what's the other one? The little island, Jeju Island. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a resort destination, so I'm not sure why someone would... I, mean, I guess there's some people who live there too, but I'm not sure how you would pick up too much traffic, but it's, it is a very busy airport. Um, like, right. That's the busiest domestic route in the world is yeah. Jeju to Gimpo in Seoul. So, I mean, there, there are some options there. I also keep coming back to like, he's talking about trying to grow the fleet to 50 planes. And so my rough math says a sort of full round trip from a U.S. Main, or lower 48 to Anchorage to Asia and all the way back takes 48 hours. So you need two planes on any given route. Mm-hmm. So that's 25 routes. So 25 destinations on each side. If if you're going to run your planes to 100%. Right. So let's say they keep some spares and blah, blah, blah. You so need like 20, 20 destinations? 22? I mean, let's, yeah. yeah. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt so they need 20 destinations. I could probably find 20 cities on the U.S. side that are big enough to support some, you know, 180 seats to Asia every day. Yeah. Or 150 seats to Asia every day and you sell them at the right price and maybe it works. I can't come up with more than like six to 10 on the Asia side that those planes can reach. Um, yeah. I mean, because I mean, isn't Seoul kind of right at the edge of yeah. the range? Seoul probably needs auxiliary fuel tanks to go. What What about Beijing? I'm sure Beijing is Way too, far. too far. Okay. Um, no, got, the yeah. Harbin. Harbin. You've got Chengcheng and Vladivostok that are all right there. Yeah. I just don't see those markets Making opening money. up as being useful, but. We'll see. I mean, right now, the other problem is like right now, it's almost impossible to predict anything because Japan and Korea are, and China are all basically closed. Yeah. I mean, I guess you've got Sapporo, right, in the north of Japan, Sendai in the north of Japan. What's the one that's New Chitos is the airport? CTS is the that's, airport. That's, that's Sapporo. Okay. So, yeah. Right now, I, I see some secondary cities there. I, I get that. And like not having to connect through Tokyo makes sense, especially for the ones that aren't train connected onward from, you know, from Tokyo. Yeah. And, the Tokyo train, the Japan trains are great, but from the airports, you have to like go into town and switch over to the high speeds to the Shinkansen. So. Yeah. And like in Sapporo is on a separate island. So. Right. So the one where you yeah. had to fly anywhere, I guess you can sort of take a train up there. Yeah. There's like a ferry and stuff. Yeah. And, and, and one Shinkansen, I think that's under, underwater or, you know, buried somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, I, I just, it's, just, it seems like, you know, a good way for a billionaire to become a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they got, I'm just trying to think like if they got this many planes, 50 is and and, and is Anchorage a great connection spot for yes. For, like, do, do you really want to hang out in Anchorage airport for however long or is he going to time these flights? No, they're going to be perfectly banked. OK, um, one one bank inbound, one bank outbound every day. Um, and because they're using the north terminal, which has like that's the other thing. It's only got like eight gates, I think. 
Yeah. So you can't really put 20 planes through it. Um, but even that way, like he, they're going to affect, not own, but effectively own the terminal, right? They have the full run of the building. So, you know, talking about putting in a lounge and some other things and all the concessions and whatnot. It, because the other terminal is pretty crowded, actually, especially during peak times. But this one, uh, they expect they'll have sort of full control over and be able to do the flow. And they're going to be the only international rivals. You know, historically, there's been the oddball charter from Japan or Korea. And Iceland. Because it is only like... Iceland Air flies into there, too. Okay. Um, or they used to, at least. Yeah. And I didn't... Condor at one point have Anchorage flights and the, the White Horse tagged yep. to Condor or, exactly. or to Anchorage. So, I mean, there's a couple, but those were like once or twice a week, rando, whatever, right? Not daily, not two a days, whatnot. So there's enough. The theory there is if he brings four planes in, can he clear 600 people through immigration in an hour and be done with it? I mean, maybe 90 minutes. If enough have pre-check or use the app or whatever and CBP staffs it, yeah, they can sort of crank them through. So, we'll yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe he can make, maybe he can spark some deals with uh, Japanese airlines or something. Like, could well, you that's, that's... so that's the other thing is you know you talk about selling tours for people just going to Anchorage, right? The mm-hmm. the sort of O and D traffic, as we like to call it, um, and that's not really a big part of the business model right mm-hmm. now. Um, at least what he's talking about. I've heard some discussions about trying to pick up serious tour packages on the Asia side, and. I think during the summer, or if they can get some Northern Lights packages together, they they absolutely can pick up some traffic for that. Uh, The challenge is, uh, when you start selling those packages, if it's stuffed through to the lower 48, especially, like the big packages that are sold on those routes are often from tour companies that are highly aligned with A&A or JAL. So why are those guys going to be like, oh, we could also sell you this random company that doesn't pay us as much? Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, that's a tough spot. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'll tell our listeners again, go listen to the, the full, I mean, it's, it's only like a 15 minute episode. Yeah. So. yeah it's like a 10 minute chat episode 369. We had some fun. Yeah. It's great stuff. Um, can we just say 5g is a problem right now? C band 5g. C band 5g is a problem yes. right now. Yes. It continues to be. Uh, it is, it's, I would say it's close to being a nightmare. Well, so like there's only the one day where a half dozen, or a dozen or so flights from like a half dozen airlines all canceled international inbounds because Boeing issued a release saying don't fly triple sevens or seven four eights anywhere near any of these towers. Uh, so Emirates, JAL, ANA, and Air India all canceled flights. I think a couple others did too. Those are the four I can remember off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But um, and except uh, Emirates kept the triple seven at Dulles because Dulles wasn't on the list of airports affected with a NOTAM. Because they, I guess they don't have any 5G towers nearby. It, no, the whole thing is a mess. The part that's most amazing to me is that, like, as everything came to a head last week, there was this huge, like, the huge panic and whatnot. And then they stopped the uh, planes from flying and or those flights all canceled and whatever. And then, like, the next day, the FAA came out and said, oh, we've tested the radio altimeters on all of this, the, the, you know, the handful of radio altimeters that are installed on 330, the 340, the 737, whatever. They picked a bunch of aircraft that covered like, I think the first day was like 40% of the flying U.S. fleet. Mm-hmm. And they're all fine. Don't worry about them. <laughs> and then like the next day is like, ah, we cleared a bunch more. The next day we cleared a bunch more. And so I have to wonder a few things. One, what are they actually testing? Mm-hmm. Because it's gone pretty quickly. And two, the hell were they waiting for? That's I think that's the part that irritates me and a lot of people the most. Shouldn't is, these tests have been started years ago when the Spectrum was sold? Exactly. Like they've had years to figure this out and they're now the, it's the eleventh hour. It's the eleventh hour and fifty nine. It's like minutes. the thirteenth hour. <laughs> We've passed the twelfth hour. It's done. 
and 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 they cannot get it done and it's it's yeah. infuriating because it's causing delays it's causing problems i think today it caused some problems at seattle again yeah you're, uh-huh. we're recording this sunday evening and you can see i got fogged in and there was a there were flights that couldn't make it and so that's the regional fleet is really uh still hurting uh, yeah. in the u.s the some 170 family ember 170s are approved but like I don't think any of the some are not, and so SkyWest is still having some trouble up there. And then also, none of the Q400s that Alaska Airlines uses up that way uh, yep. with Horizon have been approved, and none of the 50 seaters yet. And oh, by the way, the, those just operate 30 to 40 percent of any, the daily departures in the U.S. on any given day. Oops. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like, why are we just now uh, yeah. catching up and and trying to figure this out? It's part part of me one of the the sort of conspiracy theory cynic, cynic in me. Um, which is a big part of my profile some days. Uh, <laughs> I think we've talked about this before. Like historically, the airlines have been loath to pay for hardware onboard hardware upgrades to support new systems. Yeah, um, we've talked about that with the sort of precision approach stuff and GPS based versus you know the step ladder, whatever. Um, and I do wonder if some of it was the airlines weren't pushing it because they were hoping somehow either the FAA or the telecom companies were going to somehow be forced to pay for new radio altimeters on board. Yep, that they could prove wouldn't be inter- wouldn't have interference issues. But the whole thing, I mean, the part where Boeing claim like Boeing claims to have known that there were no issues, but then also put out this bulletin saying don't fly your triple sevens there, and then like yeah, tri- I don't it's, know. And then, it's then confusing. Like, Oops, never mind, it's fine. Yeah, it's confusing. Then then the airlines are going to err on the side of caution, and which, I which they should be. Which they should. Yeah, they should. I, I'm not. I'm not faulting them. I think. Yeah. It, I think Boeing's. Poor language and poor, but and just the overall. I'm going to blame Boeing for a lot of things in this week's episode. I don't think this is necessarily entirely Boeing's fault, but no, no. But I'm saying like their use of like, well, it'll be fine. Like I think people are not going to take that, yeah, seriously right now. In my opinion, um, and and, but the FAA and uh, the FCC, like, figure it out. Like, figure it out. It's just if wishing made it so. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I I, I told someone this the other day that you know I'll, you're going to see a lot of delays and people are like oh, I don't understand why 5G would have anything to do with any of this. And I'm like, this is this is. I mean, we saw that there's a you know a Delta seven six three that had a, a multiple go arounds at uh, San Francisco missed approach because the terrain warning went off and myself and a friend of the show had some conversation about it. And it's hard to say it wasn't 5G. Yeah. Because of the location and visibility and the terrain warning and anyway, so or something, you know, some interference with the systems. Yeah, exactly. And we won't know unless Delta says something. But, yeah. Um, speaking of you know things being weird, uh, <laughs> Airbus has basically told Qatar Airways and Al Akbar uh, to to piss off. Yeah, well, it's nothing like t- taking an order for 50 airplanes and canceling it from the uh, manufacturing side. 51, actually. Yeah. Uh, there's 50 A320 family, which I think had been upgraded to the A321s mostly now, for delivery in the next few years, as well as the one remaining A350 that was due to Qatar Airways. And so this goes back to the paint-peeling fuselage uh, uh, battle, if you will. I don't know. Debate? Yeah. Um, yep. Cluster. <laughs> uh, and What's amazing about it is there was, so we talked about this a couple weeks ago, there was a lawsuit that was brought in the UK, um, or I think Airbus said it was retaining legal counsel, and so Qatar always filed suit. 
And somewhere in that, there was sort of some of these documents have finally come out now. And there was an agreement that Airbus would pay $175,000 per day per aircraft grounded if it couldn't fly. Yep. That adds up to a lot of money. Yep. Um, and you'd wonder why Airbus would agree to that in, you know, knowing how much money it is and knowing that these planes are grounded. And then you find, and then we come to find out that Airbus agreed to that, but also is claiming that the planes that are grounded don't need to be, so it's not going to pay for it. <laughs> because this is a airline and regulatory capture, essentially, because the, it's only the Qatari uh, regulators mm-hmm. that are suggesting these planes can't fly. Um, and so it must be doing so at the whim of the airline or some combination, you know, between the two, uh, manipulating each other. And so it's not real. And so they're not going to pay. And it's tens of millions of dollars now, maybe hundreds. And it's a huge sum and it's growing. Maybe it's growing four million a day or something like that because the number of planes. Yeah. Um, and so I laughed a lot when I saw that. Uh, but you know, in the end, basically, Airbus was like, you know what? These guys. So the and the, the 320 order originally was for the 320 Neo. Qatar Airways was supposed to be the, deli- the launch customer. They were going to be the first delivery. And because of issues with the engines, uh, they ended up not taking delivery. And Lufthansa, like at a moment's notice, showed up and was like, yeah, we'll take ours. And they accelerated delivery and Lufthansa became the first operator. <laughs> um, as an aside, I was going to go over for the first flight and like, it was a crazy, crazy, stupid, like fly to Germany for an hour kind of thing. And then <laughs> ended up deciding like that week, like had an award scene, it was fine. And then like that weekend decided not to go and like the flight was delayed and maybe pushed a day and this and that. I was like, yeah, I'm happy I didn't go. Um, <laughs> but right. And like, Qatar Airways wasn't wrong necessarily in that case. The engines took too long to start um, was one of the complaints. And there were some other things about them that weren't operating to spec, you know, as promised. But also, was that enough of a reason to not take the order? Uh, No one else seemed to think so. And now, like, even though there were some teething pains and some engine issues um, that we've talked about over the years, the, the fact of the matter is, like, it's a hugely high demand aircraft right now. And Airbus is basically saying we don't want to deal with this guy bitching about quality issues and you know I, I, i'd say for a long time now there's been this sort of is anyone going to ever call his bluff mm. and airbus has finally decided that it's in a position to do so now maybe that's because it doesn't see a wide body refresh coming anytime soon <laughs> and it doesn't right like air it's already delivered a bunch of airplanes and like maybe they don't expect a new order to come in for 10 years so it doesn't really matter but that's a big gamble but we talked about this. We've talked about this multiple times on the show. Other airlines have reported paint issues, right? Other airlines have reported some paint issues, but none of them nearly as bad and nearly as pervasive. And, and to be fair, like Qatar Airways is part of the escalating uh, rhetoric around this. Put out a video showing some of the paint peeling off of the fuselage, and that's you know super close up shots, and whatever. And yes, paint is peeling. Having seen, you know. United battleships flying around with like yellow coming up out from underneath the paint. It's unclear how much of that is actually a problem versus just like regular wear and tear. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Qatar Airways is basically saying it wants root cause analysis to understand why the paint is peeling. And until it has that, the planes are considered unsafe and no one else is willing to call them unsafe. So that, that is an issue. So yes, other airlines have noticed peeling issues and they're like, huh, that's interesting and just fix it. And Qatar Airways has taken it to a different level. Haven't, haven't we seen, and ha- welcome to the show, Foss. Hello. Um, haven't we seen, because uh, the Airbus, the, the, the 350s are partially composite, right? Or a large part composite. Yes. Have we the seen? The wings, definitely. I forget what other parts. Because I was going to ask, like, have we seen like 787s with peeling paint? Offhand, no. Because I mean, I, I know one of the things was they didn't want the composite 
structure exposed, I thought, because it's, you know. I mean, one of the things that people tend to forget, paint is not just decorative, but it's actually protective layer. Yeah. Whether it's on a plane or a house or whatever, it's actually there to protect what's underneath. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe maybe the planes yeah. are flyable, but... Part of the fuselage is, too, yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe the planes are flyable, but I mean, to me, if you buy a product, and maybe it's just my simple mind, you would expect that product to last a little while, especially when it costs hundreds of millions of dollars. And I just returned a pair of sneakers that were delaminating, but I didn't have to fight with Nike about it. Like Airbus is having to fight with Qatar Airways. Yeah, it's. Could you imagine? Like, could you imagine? Well, I'm going to sue you. No, we're going to sue yeah. you the for wearing the sporting goods. Were very nice. It was lovely. <laughs> but, but I guess one of the questions that I'd ask is: Has Airbus given us any evidence to say that this is not a real problem, other than just saying it? Right when someone is really, so. yeah, when someone is in the wrong and you are in the right, then you can provide evidence to prove that. Yeah. I think I think there's also though Airbus looking at like how do you prove a negative like yes the paint is peeling it's okay it's not a system like until how do you say it's not a catastrophic failure of the system because the only way to prove that is to not have catastrophic failures. Well, if we go back 20 years ago, they would also say that a split control system is not catastrophic <laughs> until it, until the plane crashes. Yeah, until there's an incident, then suddenly oh yeah, this is our bad. Or if you fast forward 20 years, it's still not a problem. It's just happened in two incidents. I was going to say, or it's still an issue with the ASA and the Boeing 777X, which was on our list of things to talk about tonight. Yeah, let's talk about it now. Like, what's going on there? So, you know, control systems and disparate controls and whatever that basically uh, Boeing has designed the airplane with dual control systems and redundancies. EASA is apparently suggesting that because there's so much software involved, it needs to be dual supplier. So that there's like, if, if the software goes haywire, there's a backup for that too. And Boeing is basically freaking out because the FAA doesn't seem inclined to require that. But if these planes can't fly to Europe, that's a problem. And the cost and complexity that to dual source all of that would be, and integrate them together would be massive. So let me get this right. In the eyes of IASA, one system is okay, but two systems by the same vendor are not? Yes. How the hell does that make sense? I mean, I'm not sure that one system on it. I mean, it's not obviously it's not single. Any single control system is okay, also, but it's a super weird setup. Um, I don't know. So, are they wanting the new the the backup system or the tertiary system to be a, another carrier, like another software provider? Basically, that's what I've read. Yeah, it's how I read the story. They all outsource the same people at the end of the day. Yeah, it's like there's only so many people who make software for airplanes. Like, it's just, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. But so, what's Boeing doing? Are they fighting the decision? There hasn't been a decision, so that's part of the fun, right? This is mm-hmm. one of those like we're still talking and working up. You know, we're still doing the test flights and negotiating or conversing with the uh, regulators on what it's going to take to get there. Interesting. Boy, oh boy, I bet the, I bet the executives at Boeing are just loving it right now. Yeah, and right, I mean, and if you're Boeing, like you want to be like, no, we're fine. like we know what we're doing. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But also, you don't you don't really have the opportunity to make that argument right now. Yeah, <laughs> because you've made some pretty bad mistakes in recent years. Um, I also though wonder like, okay, I get sort of like you could yes, I could say from here forward that's a requirement, but would they require the same thing of Airbus? Yeah, probably not. The three fifty, I mean, right? The like the three fifty has all the same level of modern controls mm-hmm. and redundancies and whatever. So it's hard for me to see that much different. If anything, like Airbus's fly by wire, or, yeah, the fly by wire stuff is arguably more has long has had a longer history of that level of interaction. So and I, I hasn't had and hasn't had that requirement. What do you think they? Think. What do you think they they look at when they're when they're deciding this stuff? Is it 
is it because the control systems are so like what's driving this? Is it the control systems themselves or is it the fact that there's like been an incident with these types of control systems? Like, is it the Boeing issue with the Max that drove them to this decision? I have see, no idea. See, the cynical part of me is going to say the bribe wasn't big enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's move on to lasers. Uh, lasers with sharks. Sharks with lasers on their fins? That's yeah. all I wanted. Sharks with freaking laser beams. <laughs> uh, Seth, you got you got lased coming into uh, Ontario. Yeah, we were. Uh, I was looking out the window, taking some pictures, as I tend to do. And even sort of late night, uh, was still trying to take pictures in the dark, and like caught out of the corner of my eye a, a bright green flash, and it sort of went away. And then it came, and I was like, "Huh?" And I had my camera, whatever. And like a couple seconds later, it came back, and it was very obvious to me that it was someone pointing a green laser at the plane. Jeez. Did you talk to the pilots after landing? I did. Um, I had a picture of it. I didn't actually have it to show them, but I asked them when we landed, like, hey, did you guys see the laser? And you're like, did you guys have any problems with it? He's like, no, nah, nothing, no issues up here. We were already pat. It was behind me, even in, you know, row mm-hmm. 15 or whatever. So I guess they did a bad, you know, you have to do a pretty good job to get it directly into the flight deck and whatever. Um, but you'd probably want to do that from the front, not the back, to make it actually damage the pilot. So he, I guess, as I think I put it on Twitter, thank goodness for incompetent criminals. Yeah. Yeah. But that was, I will say, I'm. It's it was sufficiently bright that I'm not surprised it causes massive problems for pilots. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned to you guys we had one. I was coming into Portland. I don't know, probably last year sometime. And we, as we were landing uh, from the Washington, like from the across the river, there was a laser kind of shining in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually asked the pilots on the way out of the plane. I said, "Did you all see that?" And he's like, "Yeah, we've reported it." Um, I just thought that was crazy. I mean, we were pretty low too, which. It, could you imagine blinding a pilot as he's about to land like really close? It's just, it's freaky a little bit. Yeah. So, um, and then, but on the other side of things, FedEx wants to do something with lasers. This was an absolutely bizarre news cycle that I love. Uh, <laughs> the FAA published a notice of proposed rulemaking, the sort of standard, we're going to put this in the federal register and ask for feedback like they do for you have to repair your engines or you're allowed to use this fancy new seatbelt design or whatever. Um, the uh, windshield wiperless heated windshields we talked about the other day, that's was a similar thing mm-hmm. um, that FedEx wants to equip some a three twenty ones with lasers to work as anti-aircraft uh, or anti-missile defenses. Are we shooting down FedEx planes now with, to get the packages, what are we, what are we doing? Where are well, the I mean, packages? It's a lot easier. It's a lot harder to grab them than the trains, uh, the Union Pacific trains in LA. So you got to get them <laughs> on the ground first, um, or just pop a hole in the back and let the boxes fall out. I guess um, no, but so let's start with FedEx does not own or operate the A three twenty one freighter, nor does it have an announced order for the A three twenty one freighter. Yep. So there's that little nugget of what? Uh, on top of which, like. They don't even do most of their own uh, installs of like aftermarket delivery hardware for avionics, fancy like fancy stuff like that. So it's unclear why they're doing this themselves. Um, but the application was put in in 2019 and only yep. just now starting to get some news. <laughs> uh, but it only just now got published, so fine. But on top of all of that, at like 48 hours or 72 hours later, the FAA withdrew its notice of proposed rulemaking, stating that. It needed to further review the uh, the application and the impact and blah, blah, blah. And as such, it's not ready to move forward at this time. And so after all that, like, nothing happened. We could start a rumor that they're about to launch passenger service. 
321 freighter is definitely a thing. It's happening. There's actually there's an awesome picture of one uh, that's going to be flying in Japan, the Yamato, which is like the uh, their ground transport. You know, like mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever used those in Japan. Like, there's a huge network of local ground delivery services. That's like basically anything via ground service gets there, basically sort of overnight. Yeah. Um, because of upcoming changes to truck driver rules uh, in Japan that are going to limit duty days and things like that, they're going to add uh, a handful of 321 freighters to their fleet. <laughs> and so that, that news came out uh, over, I guess, last week at one point. But um, those planes are going to be. Uh, see if I, they're going to acquire three of them. The aircraft are PDF da, 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 operating in 24 hours. Here's what I wanted. They uh, will be operated by Jetstar Japan. Uh, leased to Yamoto and using JAL flight numbers. Wow. But the Jetstar op- operates an A320 family already, so it makes sense to have the crew do that. I mean, FedEx has a ton of 757s, right, that they bought yes. secondhand. So a 321 Freighter makes, would be a natural replacement for those because, I mean, they, they bought planes that are 20-something years old. Sure. And at some point, they have to get replaced. Yes. Wow. You know, wow. 105 active 757s. Yeah, and they, those are probably those are probably reaching near the end, right? I would think most of them are ex-United, yeah, pre-merger yeah. United ones. Oh, I Crazy. forgot to mention that. Uh, sorry, going back to the Northern Pacific thing. Northern Pacific picked up some of the old PS planes. Oh, really? So they really, the like, they really like the Pratt and Whitney's. Well, but those, I mean, oh, which PS though? I mean, like old Continental fives? No, the seven fives, the old United planes that don't have that are the but are the Pratt and Whitney's, not the Rolls. That's what I was gonna say. It's like they like they like the Pratt and Whitney's, I guess. That which is weird to me. Like I would want the Rolls. Were the Royce. U.S. Airways ones the Pratt's or the Rolls? No, U.S. had Rolls Royce. Right, because that's how you get the range. Yeah, yeah. but the PS ones aren't ETOPS. So they don't need it. You, you missed miss part that of the part. <laughs> they don't need ETOPS. <laughs> Never mind. We'll brief you in later. Uh, yeah, no, it's a super. Super strange. The only thing I could think of is that they're going to basically fly like half the fleet only over the U.S. and half to Asia, and they can get away with it with the you know shorter range for some of the planes. But yeah, maybe use the Pratt some, for yeah, the stuff. Some, yeah, some fleeting like that when you're so small is a crazy choice. Yeah, I mean they're cheaper than the Rolls Royce because the Rolls Royce yeah. are more demand. Sure, but they're cheaper because they can't use them as much. <laughs> exactly, you can't. You don't get the lift. And this guy's pushing the limits of these planes. So anyway. Crazy, crazy fun. Yeah. Um, Alaska is adding 737s to their Everett uh, flights. Yeah. Which, I think, which is a little crazy. Well, they, so they announced this last year and then it got delayed and whatever, and it's come back and it got delayed and it came back. I think it's Vegas and Phoenix. Yep. Maybe. Um, yep. With more to come, they said. Sure. Um, I don't know. I think I could come at it from a couple different sides. One is they're now the only game in town, so they've got you know some reason to you know some pricing power and whatever, and they maybe think they can fill up the planes better. Um, the other is regional pilots shortage. Uh, yeah, they can't keep the regionals flying, and they want to keep those routes operating. Wasn't Southwest talking about flying into Everett? So Southwest originally had slots and decided magically decided not to fly in after Alaska Airlines gave it slots at LaGuardia or DCA. I forget which that Virgin and America had previously held. LaGuardia. Yeah, that makes sense. Because so just Yeah, it was like a quid pro quo, but it was just a, a strange coincidence that after we got this great valuable thing, we decided not to compete with the airline in the new market. I mean, a Southwest, I think, would have probably undersold and been pretty popular at paying, honestly. Yeah. They would have undersold, they would undercut Alaska on their pricing for sure. Um, I mean, Alaska's pricing is not crazy uh, from what I've seen, but it's, it's still 
pretty expensive for some of the flights. I mean, because they fly to like Boise from from Everett, and it's it's pretty expensive. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I mean, I think it's pretty cool to have seven thirty sevens going in there. Um, it it'll be. I mean, I, I wonder if United will try and make a play at it again. Why? Eh, just I mean that again. Seattle being full. Seattle being Seattle. Yeah. Uh, and catching some of that northern Seattle traffic and and possibly picking up some stuff from Bellingham. Um. If people you know people don't want to drive all the way through the city, yeah. Um. I don't know. I mean, I think there's that, and then there's also the idea that you know it's a small terminal. Having two seven thirty sevens there at the same time, that's going to fill that terminal up. Oh yeah. So, uh, see how Alaska deals with that. Is the business revenue there? I don't. I don't know. You know, I have some. We have uh, some family friends that live. They actually work for Boeing, and they live up up that way. I would have to ask them. Like, what do they think? I don't think they fly anywhere. Maybe they'll connect in Portland. But as far as I know, they just drive down to SeaTac um, yeah, as long as the weather's cooperating. I don't really see United going back unless there's the high revenue folks. Yeah. Yeah. And at least right now, I mean, when we talked about this in Seattle in general with Delta last week, like what's, what does business travel look like? Yeah. Yeah. We don't even have an indication that like regular business travel is back, much less the sort of on the edges or fringes, you know, sort of smaller markets. Well, I mean, per the American CEO, if we got rid of masks on, aer- on pl- airplanes, it would bounce back overnight. Yeah. But, you know, outdoor, yeah. Yeah, outgoing. So, you, know, you can say whatever you want, right? Uh, <laughs> um, what else we got here? You, United Arab Emirates has grounded all drones and light aircraft. Yep. What has prompted? Apparently, the people kept flying them where they weren't supposed to, like over the airport. It, well, I don't think it was anything that uh, dramatic because there haven't been stories about like the airport shutting down. But mm-hmm. you, I can imagine that there are severe restrictions in terms of where you're allowed to fly things there, or yeah. just like you know, recreational pilots. You know, could be accidentally sort of busting the. I've been I've been in a plane with a relatively new pilot, and he was trying to navigate UK airspace and like didn't get the radio response he needed for clearance to cross over a, a busy airport, and didn't turn off. You know, didn't veer out in time and got a stern talking to, and then was it was fine because it was like you know his local field and whatever. But learning that stuff and doing it right is a challenge, and I could understand that like people don't always do it right, but the sort of over like they put out reminders of like don't screw up don't screw up and people kept screwing up and they're like okay just don't do it anymore sorry yeah take away the privileges yeah um and there's like you can get an exemption to do commercial filming and stuff like that but you actually have to get the exemption now you can't just do it yeah do you i mean did your did your pilot friend uh get a phone number (laughs) when he had a problem (laughs) because that's that's the sign right there like can you you copy a phone call this number please (laughs) yeah no in his case he was lucky it was the controller at the airfield where he was doing the training okay where he was like where his flight training was based so it was someone he knew and whatever and like it was a friendly talking to but it was a talking to yeah yeah wild um ethiopian is put the max back in service coming soon well we're recording on sunday it hadn't happened yet but they said in the, within the next few days is what they said online wow. so by the time this comes out for real it might be done that's exciting good news for them I'm yeah sure they're happy to have the planes back in um, you know flying making money I wonder, if no, too I wonder if they'll have issues getting people on them, though. Oh, just like getting passengers? Yeah. Like, there wasn't one... an issue in the U.S., but the U.S. didn't have anybody killed. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I see I see what you're saying. I, I completely missed your your slight undertone there, Foz. I, I, I apologize. <laughs> no, it was a serious question, right? In the U.S., people got on them, some hesitant, but they, there weren't any incidents, right? Yeah. Ethiopian was the, you know, did have an incident themselves. So that probably eroded confidence even more than non yeah. airlines with no accidents. Very true. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. The other thing, though, is also like how much demand is there for air travel within Africa right now. And so could they come back a little slowly and sort of demonstrate the safety of the aircraft without much risk? Yep. Yep. Um, I think that pretty much wraps up the show, guys, unless you all have anything else. Um, I think for our for our Patreon subscribers, we're going to talk a little bit about planes turning around uh, and uh, our favorite subject, Alitalia. So uh, if you'd like to hear that content, stick around, become a Patreon subscriber. Uh, and But if not, that's fine. Leave us a tweet. Leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, happy travels. Take care.